Welcome to A Journey of Transformation Empowerment. You're listening to Antonio T. Smith Jr. Where ideas ignite, change, and possibilities are endless. Before we dive into today's episode, we have something special for our listeners. Today's podcast is brought to you by a groundbreaking book that's reshaping the conversation around Black economic empowerment. It's Resegregation, Volume 1, The Power Matrix, a master plan for Black group economics with wealth creation, authored by visionary Antonio T. Smith, Jr., Antonio isn't just an author. He's a former top-secret combat special operations intelligence sergeant turned millionaire. His life work championed the economic autonomy and wealth creation within black communities. In this seminal work, dedicated to teachings of Dr. Claude Anderson, Antonio outlines a comprehensive blueprint covering critical sectors like finance, technology, manufacturing, and more. He blends military discipline with acute understanding of systematic disparity. This isn't just a book. It's a movement. A call to action to create lasting wealth and reshaping the economic narrative. Antonio's vision is clear. Drive a significant shift toward black ownership and control. Listeners, if you've ever wondered about innovative strategies for wealth creation or how technological transformation can uplift the black communities, then this book is for you. Join Antonio Smith Jr. on the transformative journey. Pick up your copy of The Resegregation Volume 1, The Power Matrix today and be a part of the reshaping future. Now, let's dive into the episode and explore the possibilities that await us. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. You're really going to enjoy this message. Here we're going to talk about how much is enough. Not for me, for you. How much money do you really want? We're going to be introduced to a very special friend of mine, a great speaker and quite a result-oriented guy, Paul Hutsey from Pittsburgh, Kansas. And we're going to be talking about the image maker. You are an image maker. Now, on page 17, at the top of the page, how much is enough, Earl Nightingale said something that I love. He said, most people think 
They want more money than they really do, and they settle for a lot less than they could get. I think probably many of you were born with the very same idea I was, or raised with it anyway, that if you're going to earn any money, you're going to have to work really hard. Well, let me go back to what Napoleon Hill said here. He said, one idea is all that you need to achieve the success you seek. Now, he said, when riches begin to come, they're going to come so quickly and in such great abundance that one wonders where they've been hiding through all those lean years. Now, he said, this is an astounding statement, and all the more so when you take into consideration the popular belief that riches come only to those who work hard and long. When you begin to think and grow rich, you're going to observe that riches begin with a state of mind, with definiteness of purpose, with little or no hard work. He said, you and every person ought to be interested in knowing how to acquire that state of mind which will attract riches. Now, in another part, way towards the middle of the book, he reemphasizes this. He said, if you are one of those people who believe that hard work and honesty alone will bring riches, perish the thought because it's not true. He said, riches, when they come in huge quantities, are never the result of hard work. Riches come, if they come at all, in response to definite demands, based upon the application of definite principles, and not by chance or lack. Now, we're talking about the definite principles. It's up to you to apply them. You want to stop and think, how can I fill a definite demand? Now, you don't have to go too far to see very poor service. These people have never gained an understanding of the law of compensation. The law of compensation is based on three very simple points. The amount of money you and I earn is always going to be in direct ratio to the need for what you do, your ability to do it, and the difficulty will, there will be in replacing us. Now, there very likely is a great need for what you do. You had nothing to do with that. That need was just there. Your ability to fill that need, all you have to do every day is put forth an effort to do whatever you're doing better. And as you do that, you're going to find that it'll become very difficult to replace you. There's very few pros around. A lot of people busy, but not too many doing it properly. Now, we're saying for you to get into this prosperity concept or get it into high gear, you must be specific. If you want some money, you have to be certain that you know exactly how much money you want. You see, what we're working with is our subconscious mind. Now, we've touched on that a few times. Let's take a look at it again. It's the ideas that have been programmed into our subconscious mind through repetition that is forming the conditioning that is there now. It's that conditioning that causes us to do what we do and get the results we get. If there's poverty in this area or a lack of wealth, the problem is not in what we do. The problem is in what causes us to do it. You see, 
the action or the behavior is an effect. Now, this is what everyone works at changing. They're working at changing effects. If you want to change a result, it's absolutely essential that you go to the cause of the problem, the primary cause. And the cause of your financial situation right now is right in here in the subconscious mind. Now, what we must do is consciously choose, think, and build an idea of the prosperity that we're looking for here in our consciousness. Then we have to get emotionally involved in that idea. Now, people without money would have a difficult time accepting this. I have never met anyone with money that had a difficult time accepting this. As a matter of fact, they know it, and that's why they have the money. Now, you're working with your subconscious mind, and you have to know exactly how much you want. Now, let's stop and think for a few minutes about money. We live in one of the richest countries in the history of the world. There's absolutely no question about that. You can work productively all of your life. Let's say for 40, 45 years. And you know, it's a strange thing, but only one or two people out of 100 at the end of their commercial career are financially independent. And yet anyone can become financially independent. And the strange thing about it is you never have to earn a lot of money to become financially independent. Very, very few people earn a lot of money. There is point four, five, three percent of the population that are earning a hundred thousand dollars a year or more. Less than one half of one percent earn a hundred thousand dollars a year or more. Now, that's shocking to the average person's mind. Quite often in seminars, we'll ask different individuals, how many people do you think? What percentage of the population? I had a young lady the other day in a seminar down in Ottawa say about a third. Less than one half of one percent. If you go back and take a look at the number of people that are earning between 50 and 100,000, you're going to find it's a ridiculously low number. There's only 4.5% earning in excess of $50,000 a year. The number that go between 25 and 50 is 53%. So when you're at those cocktail parties or the neighborhood barbecue, don't believe all the stories you're hearing because they ain't necessarily so. Now let's think of this. Do we have anybody here that's 20 years old? 21? Andy, let me ask you a question. Do you want, do you want to stand up for a moment? Andy, how many ways... Let me shake your hand first. How you doing, Andy? Good. I'm doing wonderful. Andy, how many ways do you think there are to earn money? Hundreds. Well, you know, it's written in the book that there's only two. Just two ways. Now, that's a little shocking to most people. 
I had a young man the other day say one way. He was really close. <laughs> There's two ways. One is people at work, and the other is money at work. They're the only two ways that you have to earn money. Do you work, Andy? Yes, I do. You do. Do you blow, spend one of those each week? Very easily. Very easily. What we're looking at here is a $20 bill. Andy, when you get up this morning, did you sit on the side of the bed and think, I wonder if I'll get dressed today? No, I didn't. Just automatically got dressed, didn't you? Yes, I did. That's a habit, all right? That's something we do without giving any conscious thought to it. Andy, let's suppose you took one of these $20 bills and set it aside each week. Just fold it up and set it aside. And you did that for 50 weeks. You have 50 20s. How much money would you have? A thousand bucks. Now, Andy, if you did that for 50 weeks, you'd have probably formed the habit of doing it. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. Habits are hard to break, aren't they? Yes, they are. And if you kept doing it every year for 40 years, how much would you have? $40,000. $40,000. That's right. That's if you just left it sitting there. However, if you found someone that really understood how to find gainful employment for that $20 bill, and you gave it to them to put to work for you, then you've got two ways going for you. You're working, Andy, and so is your 20. Do you know at the end of 40 years, you wouldn't have 40,000, Andy. You know how much you'd have? No, I don't. What do you think you might have? So a couple hundred thousand dollars? A couple hundred thousand. If they only found gainful employment at 10%, you'd have $450,000. Yet all you've ever done is set aside $20 a week. If they found gainful employment for it at 12%, Andy, you wouldn't have 450,000, you'd have 850,000. And if they found gainful employment for this $20 bill at 14%, and there's many people around that can help you do that today, you'd have $1,520,000, Andy. And all you've ever done is set aside $20 a week. And you'd have a million and a half dollars working for you. Now, there's less than one half of 1% of the population of your country that are earning in excess of 100,000. If you never spent the 150 or the million five, if you just left it sitting there, Andy, do you know that it would earn for you between 150 and $200,000 a year? And you'd still have your million and a half. I would imagine you could probably get by on that for a while, couldn't you? If I had to. Yeah. Thank Thanks, Andy. And all Andy's ever done is set aside $20 a week. You know, if Andy worked on chips at McDonald's and never got promoted, he could become a millionaire. So do you see, the classical error that most people make is if you want to be a millionaire, you have to earn a lot of money. And of course, that's not true. If you want to be a millionaire, you have to have a plan to be a millionaire. That's all you need.
You just have to make up your mind. You're going to become. How many of you would like to be millionaires? Be honest. Let me see a show of hands. Everybody's hands up. How about you? Would you like to be a millionaire? You know, you can. All you have to do is set aside one of those each week. Give it to someone who really understands money. Now, I would be the wrong guy to give it to. If you have any doubt about this, you just ask my wife. <laughs> you see, John was mentioning his goal was to earn more money than his wife could spend. I set that goal quite a while ago, and my wife said she was up to the challenge. <laughs> Why aren't there more people become millionaires? Do you think it's possibly because they're not in the habit of setting one of those aside? Why would you say a habit was? We said a habit was an idea that was fixed here in our subconscious mind with respect to money. Now, if there's such a small number of people make it, they, they must have a habit in their subconscious mind with respect to money, but I would say it's a bad habit. But you know, through conscious choice, we can form a good habit. We can renew the mind. And you only have to discipline yourself for a very, very short period of time. Now, do you know there's many people that'll tell you they can't save any money because they're in debt? Well, if you want to use that as an excuse, go ahead. But in my books, it's a poor one. You can be in debt and still put money to work for you. As a matter of fact, if there's only two ways of earning money, it would be an excellent idea to get both ways working, especially if you're in debt. Now, take a look at page 18. If you find the task of getting your financial world in good order for this exciting journey is something that you're just not able to do, I would strongly suggest that you seek professional assistance. Now, this is something that all wealthy people do. Now, let's go back and take a look here again. John, in the last lesson, encouraged you to be very honest, take stock where you're at. I'm suggesting you decide exactly where you want to go or the star that you want to hit. Now, all we need to get from here to here is a plan and then follow it. You don't have to know exactly everything you have to do, but you have to go to someone who does. I mentioned earlier that many years ago, I earned in excess of a million dollars in one year. Now, I'm gonna tell you something that I'm not too proud of, but it's the truth. At the end of the year, I didn't have any money. I was one of those rich people that didn't have any money. I was living fairly well, but nothing extraordinary. I didn't buy any planes or trains. Or I didn't shoot off to Paris for a weekend. I wasn't in the habit of flying off to Atlantic City or Las Vegas and play on the tables. And matter of fact, I didn't even know where it went. There were some things I wanted that I wasn't even able to afford to buy, and they weren't extraordinary things. Now, if you've always worked for, a, let's say, an average wage, you might be wondering, well, how did he do it? It wasn't difficult. There's some people here in the audience that have done exactly the same thing. Probably a number of you. 
And Joseph is saying, no, it wasn't difficult. Do you know that most people have never sat down with someone that really understands money? I think if you uh, needed an operation, you had to have your appendix removed or something, I don't think you'd talk to the guy next door unless the guy next door happened to be a very competent surgeon. I think if you needed a root canal, it'd be highly unlikely you'd talk to your druggist about it. I have mentioned earlier here on the uh, tape that we had a bit of a catastrophe with our plumbing this morning. I, uh, I didn't phone the electrician to have that repaired. Why is it we just ask anyone for advice? Why is it we just say, what do you think? The person we're asking probably doesn't. But they'll always give you an opinion. Well, we're suggesting you sit down with someone that really understands. Now, wealthy people follow the advice of financial experts. Yet it's similar to the principle of the idea that if a person's body were sick, he or she would seek out a skilled physician for advice. Moreover, you should also keep in mind that even healthy people, if they're wise, periodically go to a doctor for a checkup. You know, I went to a doctor for a checkup here just recently. There was nothing wrong with me. And my wife says, go, so I went. You know, I do everything she tells me. And uh, <laughs> he was examining me, and I thought, wonder why he wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> I thought I'd hate to do this. You see, I'm a salesperson. And I love to sell. I actually pity a person that's not. Now, I know there's a lot of people that love what they do, and they probably pity the salesperson. But that's the way I think. And so, of course, I was comparing what he did with selling. And I thought, I'd much rather sell. But I still went for his advice, even though there was nothing wrong with me. Now, I want you to think about this. You don't have to be sick to get better. Come down to the middle of page 18. We say it's already been brought to your attention that very few people ever develop real expertise in the area of serious financial planning. They just don't do it. Therefore, we should seek out the, a, a competent financial counselor. Now, if you are not on the road to financial independence, this is probably why. There's three categories that people generally fall into. Number one, they're in a deficit position. That means there's more going out than there is coming in. They're in debt. Number two, they're in a break-even position. Everything that comes in goes back out. Number three, they're in a surplus position. They have more coming in than what is going out. Now, do you know, you could be in any one of those three positions, and it might still be wise to sit down with someone who really understands money. And you know, that takes some studying. As a matter of fact, it takes a lot of studying. It's a full-time job. It's not something you're going to do on a part-time basis. You've got to be as sharp as a tack, and I'm going to suggest that you have to have the left hemisphere of your brain fairly highly developed. Because it's quite a technical task. And of course... 
I operate from the right hemisphere of my brain. Someone once told me I was a bi-hemispherical paraplegic, and I'm inclined to agree with them. I just operate from about half of my brain. That's the conceptual side. The other side is kind of useless. Now, a person that's in the deficit position could form the, the opinion, and it would be tragic, that all they have to do is get more money coming in, and that would solve their problem. However, if they're in the habit, if they've got a habit, now think of this, of spending more than they earn, would bringing in more solve their problem? No. No. Of course not. If a person was in a break-even position, if they were in the habit of spending everything they earn, would bringing in more money solve their problem? Well, maybe the person should change a habit. Maybe the person should change the way they think. Maybe they should change the source of their advice. How many of you would really like to become financially independent? Be honest. Ask yourself, do you really want to change your financial position? Now, I'm going to give you a formula that the masses use and because they use it, they end up broke. It's a simple formula. There's nothing complicated about it. They take their income. They subtract from their income their expenses. And what is left, they save. What do you think the problem is? I beg your pardon? Nothing left. No. It costs them more to live than what they're earning. Now, here's a formula for financial freedom. I like that better than financial independence because I'm going to tell you money will generate a respectable amount of freedom. How many of you would like to go to Paris that have never been there? How many would like to go to Rio that has never been there? How many would like to go to Madrid and never been there? All you need is a few bucks. <laughs> a person should sit down and establish financial goals. They should know exactly what they want to be worth a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now. Without giving any thought of how they're going to get there, this is where I want to be. Then they should add to that their expenses. Do you know that most people do not even have the brain cells to figure that out properly? I might be able to, but it would probably take me a long time and I would really be afraid that I would make a big error. This is something that has to be done by a pro. Most people are not able to even identify all the areas they spend money. Well, they may think they do, but they really don't. When they add those two together, that tells them what their income must be. Now, that doesn't change their income, but at least they've got a target to shoot at. Now, if you want to become financially independent, sit down and decide exactly what you want. Go to a real good financial counselor, a financial planner, 
and let them get involved in what they call a fact-finding mission. They've got farms. They've got that little chip now. I mean, there's so many ways that they can do it. Let them figure out what it costs you to live. And then you're going to know how much you have to earn. Now, here's how we change it. I want you to take the back of that little card that you've got. Take the back of that little buff card. Draw a box on it like that. Now, if you're sitting in your den, in your family room, maybe out in the backyard, go and get a pad and a paper. Just turn this off until you get it, and then put that box on it. Now, take and draw a line right down the center. Now take and put four lines inside the box. Now above the first set of boxes, write an M. Above the last one, put an F. Put a T beside the M and a T beside the F. Put a W in the center. Now we've created a week's calendar. I like to do it a little different. <laughs> now what we're going to do now is take and change it into mornings and afternoons. A.M. Let's loosen this up a bit. You repeat this after me as you write it in. Come on. A.M. A.M. Ah, oh, come on. Only about a half year doing it. Right? What did John say? The more you put in, the more you get out. Come on. A.M. A M A M. <laughs> now you see, I started ahead of you, so I, I'm usually a millisecond ahead of the mass. All right. Now, let's take the other boxes and put in PM. Come on. PM, 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 PM. There, we all finish at the same time. You learn quick. All right. Now, let's stop and look at what the average person does. They go out and they work Monday morning, Monday afternoon, Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday morning, Wednesday afternoon, Thursday morning, Thursday afternoon, Friday morning, Friday afternoon, and they earn, let's say, $35,000 a year, and they give it all to someone else. Every cent of it. They give it to the mortgage company, they give it to the grocery store company, they give it to the leasing company, they give it to the gas station company, they give it to the dry cleaning company, they give it all away. It was their money. They worked for it. They earned it. And they didn't even keep any of it. Do you know the ancient Babylonians go way, way back. They knew exactly how to become financially independent. They were a very, very, very wealthy race of people. They said that a part of all you earn is yours to keep. And what you should do is take the first part you earn. That's yours. Now, you're going to find people say, but I couldn't afford to do that. Oh, the truth is, you can't afford not to do that. Because, you see, the latter years of your life, what should actually be the worst, may very well turn, or the best, should, may very well turn out to be the worst. Andy, 
a million and a half. And all you've ever done is set aside $20 a week. Is that correct? Have you any idea, Andy, what you would be worth in a relatively short period of time if you did that? If you just said, I'm going to take what I earn between 8 a.m. and noon on Monday, and I am going to pay me that. Anyone that is prepared to make that kind of a commitment, I can assure you can become financially independent in a relatively short period of time. Now, for many years, I traveled with John all over the place, all over the country. We would work up 200 cities in a year. And we were working with all kinds of financial institutions. And you know what really puzzled me? These people were working around money all the time, but they didn't understand it. Most of them didn't even have very much of it. It's like Bernard Brook one time said. He said it puzzled him. People on Wall Street worked around money all their life, and yet they didn't understand it. They thought they were excited because they were earning money. The truth is they were earning the money because they got excited. There's a story of Pat and John in the Born Rich book. Pat and John are friends of mine. Here about six years ago, five years ago, six years ago, I guess, just around this time of year, it was around the beginning of November, we got together and we sat down in the Prince Hotel. It was obvious to me that they were not a very happy couple, and they weren't. And it was obvious why. They had never sat down and taken one of these goal cards and written on it what they wanted. They were locked in that particular morning to a very negative polarity. I was locked into a very positive one. I was not about to move. And I said to them, John, what's something you really want? He thought I was being ridiculous, and he says, Pat and I'd like to have our own house. I said, then go and get it. Well, he said, we can't. Well, I said, why not? Well, he said, we haven't got any money. I said, John, you don't need any money. Now, some of you would think that's sort of a ridiculous statement. They certainly did. They said, what do you mean we don't need any money? And I said, well, you haven't made a decision to buy the house. What do you need the money for? And you know, that's why most people never make a decision to live the way they want to live because they haven't got the money. Then the truth is they don't need the money until they make the decision to do whatever they're going to do. I said, you want to be in the house before Christmas? I took the calendar and right across the 18th of, De of December, I said, moving. Now, I said, you just think of how to get that house, not why you can't. I said, I'd be a poor guy to talk to from this point on because I don't have a real spectacular record in the area of real estate. But I said, I know a lady that does. She worked at Harvey Callis Real Estate just up around the corner from the Prince Hotel in Toronto. Her name is Natalie Kaufman, Natalie Wasserman now. I was just at Natalie's wedding last week. I said, Natalie, I got a couple of live ones over here for you. <laughs> they want to buy a house and they haven't got any money. And I remember her saying, oh, great. <laughs> but at any rate, she came around and I said, Natalie, John and Pat have an image in here of the kind of house they want. I want you to listen carefully to them until you get the image in your mind of the kind of house they want. Go out and find it and come back and tell them how much they need to put down on that house. And I said, it'll probably turn out to be an awful lot less than what they thought. They thought it cost lots of money. They didn't know how much lots it was. The very day that I had marked on their calendar, the 18th of December, 
they moved in to number seven Bards Walkway in Willowdale, Ontario. They lived in that house for a couple of years and they sold it for a handsome profit. And the lady that bought the house is here today. Stand up for a minute, Vera. Vera Clozel bought that house. Is that correct, Vera? Yes. Thank you, Vera. Vera lived in it for some time and she sold it for a respectable profit. I'm only going back five, six years. The lady that bought it lived in it for a while. And on the 15th of September, my own son and his wife bought it. That's right. Is that right, Leslie? Brian, stand up here. Am I right or wrong? Now, how old are you, Leslie? 23. 23. Brian? 26. 26. I keep forgetting. All right. <laughs> Reminds me how old I am. Here he is, 26 years old. Where did I say I was when I was 26? I didn't even know the war was over. <laughs> I didn't. But I never had very good information running around my head. You see, that's not the first house they bought. That's the second house they bought. They've got the first one rented. And now they're living in the second one. And yet they're only 26 and 23. You telling me you can't make it? Here's a kid here from Burlington, Canada. The Barry Banner Advance. A little town just north of Toronto. City, not a little town at all. Overcome procrastination, earn a million. Earning a million before the age of 30 is passe. Tim Krochuk told Barry North Collegiate students how to earn it before they're 20. All you need is a winning attitude and the ability to overcome procrastination and intimidation. A 19-year-old student from Burlington, Ontario, it's a combination which has earned him a net worth of $1.5 million. An audible gasp escaped from the audience of more than 75 students at North when Krochuk revealed what he was worth. He said, there's no trick to having a winning attitude. It's all in the way you think. He said, this stuff, although it sounds really hokey, it works. This kid had his first business when he was 12 years old in grade seven. He's had eight cents, four of which is still in operation. You think you can't? That kid started when he was 12. Brian and Leslie just bought their second house, 26 and 23. I was trying to figure out where to get the rent. And I'm gonna tell you, on more than one occasion, I never got it, so they put a lock on the door. I'm not going to ask you how many of you that's happened to, but it's happened to me, and it happened more than once. Didn't even know how to do that. I met someone that really understands money, and I married her. <laughs> and when we came back to Toronto, I said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to originate an idea, and we're going to start a company so that the people that go through the seminars will be able to have a choice of going and getting competent financial advice. And you know that thousands of people have gone through that company. Now, Linda operated that company. The first couple that went through there were getting married in nine months. I'm going back about eight years. One said they couldn't save money and the other one said they couldn't save their soul. 
Nino, you know this couple. With a proper plan, they had enough money to put a down payment on a house and buy all the appliances for that house nine months later when they got married. Here just recently, they sold that house, earned a handsome profit. In fact, they earned more money profit on that house than they have earned themselves working since they started to work and they moved into a much more beautiful house. Now, if you're not making a headway you want, for goodness sake, go get some advice. Now, you go back on page 19. And as you take a look in this book, again, if you're sitting in your family room or you're sitting out in the back porch, on page 19, write in a date that you're going to have an appointment with a competent financial planner. And go and sit down and let them help you answer the second question. The figure below is the amount of money I need to provide the things I want to live the way I choose to live. Don't let your present financial situation deter you from going right after the thing that you really want, your goal. I want to introduce you now to a couple that I've just referred to in the seminar who thought they couldn't go after what they wanted because it would cost lots of money. But with the proper advice, they got exactly what they were after. They're a couple of very dear friends of mine, Pat and John Swan. We met Bob early that day. I remember it very distinctly. It was at the Prince Hotel in Toronto. Uh, we were to meet him at 7 o'clock in the morning. And the whole purpose of the meeting was to find out what we really wanted. We didn't know at that point, but we knew we wanted something. And I remember meeting him, and he looked directly at John and said, what is it you sincerely want? What do you want more than anything? And John just looked at him and... And I sat there and I thought, we'd been discussing this for a couple of hours. I sat there and I thought for a couple of minutes and I said, Bob, I really want Pat and I and Tony to have our own house for Christmas 1982. And this was early November. And uh, I was, that's what I wanted. Uh, and it scared me. Uh, we hadn't done real well financially up until that point. Uh, we were living in a basement apartment. And uh, the idea of owning our own home before Christmas was what I really wanted. But I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know what I needed to do it. I didn't know where I was going to get the money. Uh, I had never bought a house before. I didn't know even who I had to contact as far as a lawyer or a real estate person or anybody that I needed to help me get this house. Not only that, John, we didn't even know how much money we needed. We didn't have a clue. We just thought it was an astronomical and we sort of discounted it, put it out of our minds. And that's when Bob sat there and uh, looked at us and he said, well, what you have to do is put together a plan. And with that, he uh, reached down and he moved his coffee cup off the placemat and he picked up this placemat. And I still have it. I'm not a collector, but I still have it because it... you got to look at this. It's great. It says the Prince Hotel down there. And uh, Bob turned it over and he wrote us out a recipe of what we needed to do to get this house. And he wrote a statement on top. 
of the uh, placemat, and uh, it says decide on, on the amount you want to live the way you want to live and uh, go for it. And with that, we started into some action. Uh, Bob suggested the, a real estate agent uh, that we contact and, and get this real estate agent to show us some houses, find out what the prices were, find out what kind of house we wanted. The, we had to get a picture, a clear picture of what we wanted. We had to get emotionally involved in that picture. Uh, it was something that was, a, it was such a big idea for us at that time, uh, it scared us. It really made us uncomfortable. And with that, Bob, Bob laughed. You know, he really did. He said, it should make you feel uncomfortable. If it's a big enough goal, it will make you feel uncomfortable. And he grabbed my day timer that I had sitting on, on the table, and he opened it up until uh, December 20th. And he, you can see the day timer. He put a line through the day, December 20th, 1982, and, and he wrote, moving into house. And that made me feel uncomfortable. After that, we uh, closed the day timer, and he said, well, I have a real estate agent that you can call. I know of a, a girl that's attending the seminar that's a very good agent. So he told me to uh, call her. And I said, okay, Bob, when we get home, I will give her a call. He said, no, call her now. <laughs> There's a quarter, go. <laughs> so I went to the phone and I called her and made an appointment with the real estate agent. And uh, later that afternoon, we went and looked at some homes. Within a couple of days, we found exactly the home we wanted. And uh, then the pressure really came on because we signed an offer on this house. The offer was accepted. And we still did not have the money to close the house deal. It was, it was interesting. It was a lot of emotion. Uh, it was a fair amount of pressure because it was uncomfortable. And when you're doing something different than you've normally done in your past, it becomes uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable to you. But to uh, make the story come to a beautiful ending, November uh, early November, we, we chose the date, December 20th, to move in the house. And at 7 o'clock, December 20th, the lawyer brought the keys to us, and we unpacked our furniture and moved into the house. That's the Pat and John story. It's a good story. It's true. Think of how the proper advice changed the direction of John and Pat Swanton's life. In your action planner, on page 19, we suggest here, I, have, I will have an appointment with a competent financial planner, write in a date, and go and get the proper advice. Most of us need help in this area. I've often openly admitted it's not an expertise that I possess. Most people don't. Do what Pat and John did. Get the proper advice in this important area. Make your decision right now before you go any further Put a date and act on it. We started out this morning talking about the idea or the fact that when we think, we think in pictures. A picture can very well be called an image. 
an image on the screen of the mind. Now, there's an entire chapter in Born Rich called The Image Maker. And that's what you are and that's what I am. Let's give John a welcome. He's going to take us through the first part of The Image Maker. Are we ready? Yes. How do you feel? You know, uh, a number of years ago, I had an opportunity to work in a couple of educational institutions. And if you were to go out, how many people from Mississauga? We got some people from Mississauga. You know, as you go up Highway uh, 10, uh, just uh, past Eglinton, you see two big buildings on the left-hand side if you're going north. And uh, one building is the Peel uh, Separate School Board, and the other one is the Public School Board. And uh, I've had an opportunity to speak in uh, one of those beautiful buildings. And any time that I ever go there, I always speak on this subject, psycho-cybernetics. And one of the reasons I speak on it, because really, I think it's the bottom line in not just selling, but in living, period. Because Maxwell, Maxwell Maltz has probably put together the best piece of material that has ever been put together on this subject called psycho-cybernetics. Now, when I go to any one of those places, I will put something like our stick person on the board, and I will put the idea in the bottom part of the personality that we've been referring to, the subconscious mind. And then I will write in there, S-I, and I ask them to let that represent what is called their self-image. Now, I want you to really think about this. I start off every single self-image seminar exactly the same way. And I'll say something like this. We don't have what is called a drug problem on our campuses today. Not at York University, not at the local high school, not at any school in this country. And I will deliberately walk to the podium and I will stop and I'll pause for about 30 seconds after I make that statement. And you can see people elbowing each other or whispering to each other, wondering where did they get this one? <laughs> because you see, that's kind of a ludicrous statement. Bob mentioned this morning that dis-ease is a symptom. The use of drugs is a symptom behind which there lies a cox. Because we don't have, as Maltz mentioned, we don't have a drug problem. We don't have a drinking problem. We don't have a financial problem. We don't have a relationship problem. And we don't have, you could say, a productivity problem. The only problem we ever have with respect to those areas is a self-image problem. Now put your thinking cap on and examine this idea. I started off this morning and I said this. You can take anything that I'm going to say, or Bob, and you can reject it. You can do that. Or you can take the information and you can accept it. You can do that. Or you can just neglect it. And I said, don't accept, don't reject, and don't neglect what you hear. But I mentioned that only a fool would not take an idea. Kick that idea around 
to see if it would change, alter, and or improve the end result for a happier, healthier, more productive life. You see, if there was one thing that I ever wanted to get across to my kids or to you, is that our self-image, it sets the boundaries of performance in your life and in mine. We cannot outperform our self-image. We will never do it. Whether it's weight, and Bob will go over this in detail, whether it's income, whether it's relationships, no matter what it happens to be, our image is the governor that sets the boundaries of performance in each and every area of our life. Our image. Now think about this. I want you to imagine for a moment, I want you to go way back to when Socrates was teaching. Now Socrates taught much, but he wrote very little. Plato took what he learned from Socrates, and he put it into words, and we were all the benefactors of the work of Socrates. So Socrates decided that he was going to try to use an analogy to teach people something about this governor, about this concept, about this belief system, this idea, this image of self, and how it controls all the performance in each person's life. And this is the way he was able to do it. He said, I want you to imagine all these prisoners in an underground den. He said, they have been there since birth, and they're all lined up beside one another. He said, they're chained at the neck, they're chained at the feet, and they're chained at the hands to one another, and they all stand in an even line. They can sit, they can stand, they can turn their head each way, they can take a step this way and a step that way, but that is the extent of it. Which is symbolic to mean that many of us stand on what is called this 50-yard line of life, afraid to go for the goal because we might miss. We don't want to go too far back because we might fail. We don't seem to understand that it's got something to do with the concept or the image we hold of us. He said, now, I want you to imagine that they have never, ever laid eyes on human life because the cave is dark. They cannot see one another. Now, he said, in front of all of them, there is a big wall from which shadows are moving back and forth. And he said, from these shadows, there are voices coming as though they're coming right from the shadows directly to the prisoners in this underground den. Are you with me? Yes. Now he said, the shadows and the voices are coming from one area of the den. Way back behind these prisoners, there are people walking back and forth, unaware of the prisoners further in the den. And he said, what they are are people coming in from the ocean, going up through a cave, carrying treasures from their ships that they took at sea. And as they walk, they walk by a flaming fire, and as they do, their shadows bounce off the wall of the den and come back at the prisoners who are staring at the wall. And as they speak, their voices travel, 
and they echo from the wall, so it would appear that the voices and shadows on the wall of the den to the prisoners is real. They have no knowledge of what's going on at the back. Now, I want you to imagine that one day, the chains break away from the one prisoner standing at the end of this line. I want you to picture that. He's standing here, and the shackles fall from the prisoner. As they fall from him, he looks and he sees a light coming down from the surface of the den, coming out in the shape of an elbow directly in the area he is looking. Now, since all of us, you and I, since all of us are motivated to move in the direction of the light, in other words, every single person in this room is genetically structured to grow, to move in the direction of a light. You put a potato in a cellar, and that potato will grow in the direction of any kind of light coming through to it. Well, this prisoner spots the light and begins to move in that direction. Don't you think that as he begins to move, there would be some apprehension of some kind? And as he gets close to the light, he puts his head into that elbow and he looks up and he experiences the entire spectrum of light to the point it almost blinds him. It's overwhelming. But again, being genetically structured to continue to move in the direction of the light, he begins to climb. And don't you think as he begins to climb, he's going to feel some fear? Yes. And as he reaches the surface, he looks and he sees the sky some clouds, the trees, and all that nature has to offer, don't you think he would now be in a state of awe? Yes. Do you think now that what he once thought was real is not necessarily real, that maybe there was something beyond the light? Yes. That in other words, the way he was living and the results that he was getting or that he has, that suddenly now he realizes there is something more he could possibly do? And as he begins to walk around, he comes to a little lake. And he looks in and he sees a re an image and he begins to run from the image. Wasn't he looking at an image of self? And as he backtracks, he stands at the den and he can hear the prisoners yell, Return, we'll offer you rewards to tell us what you found beyond the den. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And do you think he'd care for such honors? And if he did go down and tell them what he found, do you think they would believe him? And if he did go back down and he walked up, wouldn't they say, ah, oh, you see, up he went, down he came. Isn't it better not to ascend at all? You see, the real danger is you will never get from the underground den or escape from a prison unless you recognize you're in one. 
And many of us are like prisoners living in an underground den. And the moment that we begin to attempt to even see ourselves as we would rather, or as we could, or as we want to be, keep in mind we are forever going to be pulled, grabbed, held on to as a hostage by the prisoners in the underground den. By the prisoners in an underground den. Something quickly that I had on here and it's disappeared. Way over in Africa, they take a little beast. When it's brand new, it's called an elephant. And they take this little elephant, they put a chain around its leg. And they take this three-foot chain and they put it on a little stake and they put it in the ground. And you know, for days and days, this little guy, he begins to pull and pull against the stake and chain, but he's too weak at that time to dislodge it. He tries and he tries and he tries for days and days and days, but soon he gives up because he's too weak to pull the chain. Do you know, folks, years and years later, when this beast is fully grown, capable of pulling loaded railway cars, capable of pulling ten times its own weight, at the end of a working day, they will take him, put the chain around his ankle, put it on that little three-foot chain onto the stake in the ground. Something that he could pull out at a moment's notice. But he continues to hang on to that chain. He will not move. The only thing that might move the elephant is fire. He will actually stay until he starves to death. What is really holding the elephant? Conditioning? Well, you see, an elephant doesn't have a self-image. But here's the most interesting thing you can learn from what Bob is going to take you through. There isn't a person in this room that was born with a self-image. I think that in that book, one of the, I, I guess you could say, uh, the, the greatest point of awareness that when I read this was one thing, that I wasn't born with a self-image. But nobody that I've ever met can explain how to alter it like Proctor can. Like Proctor can. So at the very top of this page, which is page 21, the ideas contained in this chapter could very well be the breakthrough for you because image making, once we get a firm grip on it, is a truly, truly dynamic idea. Now believe me, I, I want to emphasize this. I don't know any one lesson or any half hour or 20 minutes that can alter or effectively alter your life like the one that you're going to experience right now. I want to suggest right at this moment that you listen to the cassette and read the chapter over a few times. I would suggest that anybody who would just take this one tape from this chapter and take the book, and if they just exercised it for an entire month, things would never be the same again. What is it, Goethe, the great German philosopher, said time and time again? He said, before 
we can do something or anything. We must first be something. You see, the great conflict is in what you want to be versus what you want to, what, what, or what you are versus what you want to be. As you are is not how you must remain. What you be, what you want to become, that's what we're working on. So before we can do something, we must first be something. Most people live and die and never fully understand the power of image making. Understand that we are relating this idea to money in this particular chapter and to other areas, as you'll see when we get into it. But I want you to know that once you fully understand the image-making concept, you can effectively use it for whatever good that you desire. For whatever good that you desire. You know, the change in relationships alone will absolutely stagger you. Will absolutely stagger you. The way you feel about you. The insensitive comments that you may get. You know, they'll hit you and they'll just rebound off you like water off a fish because you'll have an understanding now that you're in control. Not the comment. Not the person that's making it. You'll be in control. It says the knowledge of image making eliminates competition from your life. Think about this. Professionals create. Amateurs compete. Professionals create. Amateurs compete. The whole idea here is a simple one. In conflict, you have two choices. You have a choice to defend yourself or you have a choice to learn in the conflict. If you make the choice to defend yourself, you're going to try to protect yourself. If you protect yourself, you're going to blame someone. And if you blame someone, you're going to miss, you're going to miss all the joy that could be yours. But if you take the attitude to learn, you're going to make it. One last statement, and then I want to bring Bob back on. The Spanish distiller at the bottom of the page just draw a circle around it because you see you're either a prisoner in the underground den or you're on the surface enjoying all the greatness, all the goodness, and all the joy that is your birthright. The good life then is expensive. There's another way to live that doesn't cost much, but it isn't any good. It isn't any good. So let's get the all level of energy up again and bring on Robert. Thank you, John. On page 22 in your action planner, I want to suggest that you take the chapter on the image maker and read it over a couple of times. Not once, read it over two or three times. I have found that as we read things over, they start to take on a different meaning. I read somewhere in a book where it said, when you read a good book through the second time, you don't see something in it you didn't see before. You see something in yourself that wasn't there before. So as we go through this chapter a couple of times, we'll start to relate to it a little different. Now, I want to suggest that at the end of this particular lesson, you sit down with the new understanding that you have from the information we've already covered and stop and ask yourself, what areas of my life would I really like to change? Take a look at some of the results you're getting at the bottom of page 22 and list some of the results you'd like to change. Now, at the top of page 23 is a quote that come out of Maxwell Maltz's classic, 
psychocybernetics. Psyche being Greek for mind, cybernetics being the science of control and communication in our marvelous mind. Now, Maltz said we act, we behave, and feel. Now think of what we're talking about here. We act, we behave, and we feel. The vibration that we're in most of the time according to what we consider our self-image to be. And we do not deviate from that pattern. This is the one stumbling block that many people have. You're going to hear from a man in a few minutes that made a phenomenal change just through understanding this one idea. And I'm going to tell you, the man was brilliant when he, under when he got the idea. It was just one small change. This could be the one you want to make. Now, Maltz explained that the image you hold of yourself is a premise, a base, or a foundation. It's nothing but an idea in your mind upon which your entire personality is built. He concluded this image not only controls your behavior, yet controls your circumstance as well. Now, it would take a respectable understanding to grasp that. How could an idea in our mind literally change the circumstances in our life. Well, by the time you finish this seminar, the various subjects in it, you're going to know exactly how those circumstances can change. It'll be very clear to you. But I can assure you, you alter this image in your mind that John was talking about. You take this idea of what you want to be and learn how to plant it in here and release this idea like that, your life will change. And you're going to hear from someone who made a big change. Now, let's take a look at this idea of cybernetics. You know, a number of years ago, many years ago, I bought this book. It was out around 1916. It was shortly after that I got it. And like most of these books I get, I read it over and over and over again. Now, let me digress for a second. I was in a seminar that Dr. Harry Roeder was conducting. And I'm going to tell you, this man is brilliant. He has an enormous amount of information of why we do what we do. And I remember we were working with a loose-leaf exercise book. It was in Chicago that I was in the seminar, although Dr. Roeder is a Canadian. And he said something that really sunk in, and on the first page in the book, I wrote it. He said, you do not understand something until you can explain it to someone else so that they understand it. Now run that through your computer a couple of times. You do not understand something until you can explain it to someone else so that they understand it. Now, that was written in a book a long time ago. I wrote it, as Harry said it. I'd read this book before that, and I read it off and on every year or two. I'll read it a couple of times. Someone came up to me in a seminar one day years ago, and they said, Bob, do you know what cybernetics means? I said, yeah. They said, well, what does it mean? I said, well, it's... Um, uh, uh, and all I could see was the front page of that book. 
where Dr. Roeder said, you do not understand something until you can explain it to someone else so that they understand. And I didn't know how to explain it. Now, this chapter or this paragraph on page 23 is right out of this book. I went and got the book out again, and I started to study it. And I got some other books on cybernetics, some real heavy stuff, and I started to study it. Now, let's read it. Cybernetics is the science of control and communication in the animal and in some machines. It is based on the fact that both biological organisms and some machines have sensors that measure deviation from a set goal. These sensors signal feedback into a coordinating mechanism, your nervous system, which corrects the output or the behavior of those same organisms or machines. Now, if you're reading a page and you go spinning past that paragraph, I think you'll have to admit it'd be pretty easy not to understand what you've just read. Now, you just read, in fact, I read it to you and you probably followed me. You might ask yourself, could you really explain that to someone? Well, I obviously couldn't. That's why it's so essential that we listen to this over and over again. A couple of us were talking at the break. And this gentleman just come back. He came back. He'd just been through the seminar. He came back through it again. And he says, it's so much different. And I said, every time you go through it, it's different. I said, that's because you're operating with a higher awareness. And you'll see things you weren't able to see before. Now, turn over onto page 24. This page could be worth its weight in gold along with the other two pages. Let's let this circle that you see at the top of the page, you're at the top of page 24, let that represent a thermostat in your home. And we take this thermostat and we set the dial to control the room temperature at 72 degrees. That is the set goal. Now, what they say? It says it has a sensor in it to measure deviation from a set goal. It signals this deviation into a coordinating mechanism, which then corrects the output. Let's suppose the room temperature is at 72 degrees. Someone leaves the front door open, and it's cold. You're in the northern part of North America, and the temperature drops quickly to 68 degrees. The sensor in the thermostat picks up that deviation. It sends a message through the electrical system in the house to the furnace. The fire's turned on. The fan's turned on until that room temperature is brought back under control again at 72. Then it cuts out. Let's look at it in another machine. We'll say this is an airplane. Well, that wasn't nice. <laughs> I'll bet you couldn't draw it any better. <laughs> it's quite obvious I haven't majored in art. Like the guy said he majored in the minors. All right. Now, this airplane, let's suppose it leaves Pearson International Airport in Toronto. And it's going to LAX or Los Angeles in California. When the pilot leaves the vicinity of the International Airport here in Toronto, the pilot sets a cybernetic mechanism. That's called an automatic pilot. Then you see the guy with the four stripes wander down the plane and 
How are you today, sir? Are you having a nice trip? Enjoying yourself, ma'am? I used to sit there and I think, why doesn't he get back in that room up front? I didn't feel particularly comfortable screaming through the sky at that height and the guy that's in charge of the ship wandering around, you know, inquiring as to the state of my health. But I would feel much healthier if I didn't see you wandering around this plane. But it didn't make any difference. He could have come back and sat with us. That plane was under control. It had an automatic pilot, a cybernetic mechanism. Now, let's suppose that airplane got hit with some unexpected turbulence and bang, it got knocked off course. The automatic pilot would pick up the deviation from the set goal. If it didn't, this thing might end up somewhere down around Juarez, Mexico. It signals a message through the electrical system in the airplane. The wings are changed. The engine thrust is changed and that plane is brought right back under control again. Now come down and take a look at these two people on page 24. We'll just draw one. This person has an image in their mind. I'll use the concept that we could all relate to. Let's suppose this person's a salesperson or they're a student. You could use either one. Let's suppose the salesperson sells a million dollars worth of their product or service every year. Do you know large sales organizations can pretty well tell you what their sales force is going to write at the beginning of the year? If they have a contest and they send them off to some exotic place on a trip for writing so much business and they name where they're going to go today and they're not going to go for a year, do you know that they can book the seats on the plane now? They know exactly how many rooms that they're going to rent. That's because people very rarely deviate from their set objective. They're locked into a habit pattern. What we could switch this, and let's say it's a student that gets a C average. Now, this salesperson may get a real pep talk in a sales meeting or something. No understanding, just motivation, no education. They get all wound up, and they go out, and in a week, they write $350,000 worth of business. Their self-image picks up the deviation from the set goal, sends it into a coordinating mechanism, the nervous system, a signal is sent, and the behavioral patterns will change, and that person will quit selling until they're back on course again. Now, they may go through a period where they write nothing for a month. Self-image picks up that information, sends a message through the nervous system, the behavioral patterns will change, they'll get up and they'll start selling again. But at the end of the year, they still have written a million dollars worth of business. Let's suppose it's a student that's getting a C average. They bring the report card home, parents turn the heat up, turn the TV off, bicycle goes, girlfriends, boyfriends are out of the picture, Rarely put the pressure on the kid. The marks shoot up and they get 100% on a test. Self-image picks up that information, sends a message to the nervous system. The behavioral patterns will change and pretty soon that child's back on course again. What's causing the problem? It's this image in here. That's what it is. That's not what they want to be, but that's what they are. At the bottom of the page, 
that drawing. On page 25, results in control of you, you in control of results. If you were to look in your Born Rich book on page 62, there's a story of a man that I am very proud to call my friend, and John's friend as well. This man started into the insurance business in the southern part of the United States 38 years ago. He had just left college. He was 23 years old. He worked as an agent, a salesperson, for three years. Then he moved into management. He held a number of management positions. As a matter of fact, he became the vice president of sales for the states of Kansas, Missouri, Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. John and I both did a lot of work for him in that area. And I'm going to tell you, he is a good man. There is just absolutely no question about it. And he is well-liked and respected, big difference in the two, of both of them. This man today decided that he wanted to quit traveling and he wanted to move back to his roots. I often ask people in the seminar, how many of you are living in the house you choose to live in? I don't very often get many hands up. This man would be able to hold his hand up because I've been in that house. I've slept there, I've eaten there on a number of occasions. And I'm going to tell you, it's one of the nicest houses I've ever been in. But it's a little more than a house. It's a real comfortable home. It really is. And you feel welcome when you walk into that place. The energy in there is just incredible. He's got a, um, just an absolutely beautiful wife, Tip. She is really a grand gal. I mean, she is something special. He's not only busy in the sales field, he's got five children and 19 grandchildren. You'd almost think the guy was 150, wouldn't you? <laughs> this beautiful house he owns, he not only sells, he gets involved in some physical labor. It's way back in off the road. And I'm going to tell you, it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. It's got some little lake. He decided to brick the driveway. And he was going to put them all in himself. Now, not being too fond of manual labor, I took a look at what he was starting, and I thought, the poor guy's got to need a psychiatrist. You know, <laughs> I asked him uh, the, this morning or last night, how many bricks did you lay there? And he said, 55,000. Give you an idea how long the driveway is. It's all his property. He wasn't bricking somebody else's driveway. Some of you will really appreciate the significance of this. And some of you may not. This man lives in a town of 17,000 people where the average income is below the national poverty level. In spite of that, he has the largest agency in the Prudential Insurance Company of America. He has 60 agents and eight managers. Now, this is absolutely phenomenal. He operates one of the largest, not one of the, he operates the largest agency 
and certainly one of the most successful. He's a man that really believes in what he does. Not a lot of people do. I've met his children. And Janie, his daughter, is the mother of three beautiful little kids. She works in the same company Paul works in. She's an agent, too. And Joe, his son-in-law, he's an agent in the same company that Paul's in. I like it when I see a person bringing their own family into the same business they're in. It speaks well of what they think of their business. I think of all the things I could say uh, about this man. He's a man of integrity, and you are more than fortunate in meeting him. Believe me, you really are. Um, he's a very special friend of mine and John's, and I phoned him just a little over a week ago, and I said, you know, I've got an idea that it would really add something to this program because there will be millions of people watching this all over the world. Within a couple of months, this particular seminar that you're sitting in will be on the market in New Zealand, Australia, in England, and in every city in North America. I wanted those people to know this man. But even more than that, I wanted them to hear from the person themselves how a man took the idea on this page and like that, put it to work, and the difference it made in his life. And I'm going to tell you something. You could not consider him a loser when he got this idea by any stretch of the imagination. He's a very special guy. I want you to stand up and really give this man a warm welcome. It's Paul Hutsey from Pittsburgh, Kansas. As I pause to think about what sets most men apart, it seems to me that goals in life is a place to start. Imagine playing football on an unmarked field of green. Not a goal line to be sought, not a goal post to be seen. It would be an aimless battle with nothing to be gained, without a thing to strive for, not a score to be obtained. We must have purpose in our lives for the flame that warms the soul. Every man must have purpose. Every, line, every man must have a goal. The question is, why are you here today? Well, I think you're here today because you want more of the good life. Right, Nino? And that's the way I was in August of 1975 when I came to this great city, when our company had a conference here. And on the last day, they were introducing the speaker, and they were telling what an outstanding personality he was and that he was going to speak for three hours in a row without a break. And I leaned over to the guy next to me and I said, I wish this guy good luck in his next job because he's on his way out of this one. <laughs> I couldn't imagine anybody talking for three hours. And then this redheaded guy ran up on the stage and started jumping up and down. And as he began to talk, why, he talked about different ideas. He talked about the way you think. And he talked about the great law. And he talked about the picture of your mind. And as he talked, well, there came a hush over the crowd, and 
He really mesmerized people for three hours. Now, I've heard a lot of speakers, but this man kind of charged me up. And when it was over, I said to him, could you and I have a cup of coffee together? And without a minute hesitation, Heather, he said, yeah. Now, one of the great things about Bob Proctor is that he's a great giver. And sometimes people give you two or three minutes. But we went off and we sat down and we talked for a long time. And I said to him, you know, some of the things that you said today kind of turned me on. I don't see myself uh, as a loser. And I'm considered to be a, a good manager. One of the bright ones, they tell me, in the company today. They say I'm a motivator, I'm a good speaker. But things never really seem to happen in my life. Why is that? The things that you're talking about. And he says, I can see very clearly what's wrong with you, and it will only take me a boot, a boot? It will only take me a boot 15 minutes to straighten you up. <laughs> so he talked for a while. He said, looky, I'm coming to Kansas. This is August. He said, I'm coming to Kansas in October to do some seminars for your company. I'll see you then. I didn't want to wait till October. I said, I want, to, I want to know about this now. He said, I'm traveling Indiana and Illinois next week. If you want to come with me, come on. So for a whole week, I traveled with him. And, and there was eight parts of that seminar, and we did four of them that week. And then at night when everybody else went to home, well, he did the other four with me. Now, let me tell you a little bit about how those ideas impacted my life and the lives of people around me and that I've been able to uh, impact. Because I began to see possibilities. I began to see doors instead of walls. That was October when he came to Kansas. My agency at that time was about 180 in a company, and in two months we went to 72. And then later that year, why I was transferred to another district. That district had not won a citation in the company for eight years one of Prudential's highest awards. When I got there, we were 163. The first year, using these ideas we're talking about right now, we finished 11 in the company out of 500. And then 9, and then 4, and then 80 and 81. We were the number one agency in the company in first-year commissions, and that's the name of the game. Everybody understands that. First-year commissions is the name of the game. And we did that in a town of 17,000 people, as he said. But I've come to understand that it's not where you are that counts, but who you are, Tammy. Now, what's the difference? What was the difference between the Paul Hutsey then and the Paul Hutsey later? Well, I've come to understand this, that there's very little difference in most people. But that little bit of difference is the way you think, and that makes a big difference. You know, William James, a great philosopher, one time said that the greatest discovery of our century is that you can change your life by changing the way you think. So from a practical point of view, from somebody that's on the street like I am, let me tell you about how these ideas that Bob talks about might impact your life and the things that they might do for you. I do some public speaking, do some seminars uh, for companies. I've developed some of my own ideas, laws that I call on, that I share with with other people, and let me share some of those uh, with you. First of all, let me talk to you about the law of repetition. And I'm going to go through this real quickly. 
but I think it's the number of times that you try something that's really going to make the big difference in your life. You see, the reason why you need to read your books and your tapes very often is because of repetition, spaced repetition. It is the number of times. That's why the video that we're doing right now is so important for you to have. Just think about having Bob Proctor in your house every day. I promise you that if you would take 15 minutes a day and listen to one part of this tape, you will be an expert on that part. But what happens while you're doing this is that you develop a habit. And that's what happens when you develop ideas long. You develop a habit that you couldn't break that habit if you wanted to. I could not harbor a negative thought if I wanted to. I'll give you a great classic example of that. Helen Keller is one of the, all the great time people. She one time coined a phrase that says, every time a door closes, another one opens. But some people concentrate on the door that's closed so much that they never see the door that's open. Now, when you practice these ideas, then I'm saying that you always get a chance to see the door that's open. Now, this time he has said so many times today, it's been said so many times today, that if you practice these ideas, and this is a quote that came directly out of Think and Grow Rich, if you practice these ideas long enough, riches will come your way so fast you don't know where they're coming from. Now, if you have a big goal in life, if there's something big that you want to achieve, then, then there's a decision that you're going to have to make right away. What are you willing to give or give up to have what you want? You see, nature's greatest law is the law of cause and effect. Emerson calls this the law of laws. The great law that says you can't take more out of life than what you put into it. No way that that can happen. Now, why is it then that we don't achieve big goals? Even more so, why don't we set big goals? Why is that? Well, you know why. It's a universal reason. Fear. Fear of failure is the reason why most people don't try to do things. What if I try and fail? What if he asks me a question and I can't answer? I don't know how it is right now, but when I was a, a young kid and we had a school dance, why, the girls all stood on that side of the wall, you know, and, and the guys stood on this side of the wall, and Esther was the cutest girl and the best dancer in school, and I really wanted to dance with her. But I was afraid to walk across there and ask her to dance, and she might say, oh, you got pimples, you know, and, <laughs> and then I'd have to walk back and all the guys would laugh at me, see, and so I didn't get what I wanted because I was afraid to try. Now, let me tell you. Let me tell you how you overcome the fear of failure. You overcome the fear of failure by having a goal that's worth failing for. That may be the most important thing I say to you all day long, is having a goal that's worth failing for, worth taking a chance. You see, I've come to understand that failure is a very positive part of your life, is that you indeed you cannot have failure without success, and that you cannot have sex, success without failure. It's both sides of a coin. So, I think about these things, and when I talk about a goal, that, having a goal that's worth failing for, I'm talking about having a, a big goal, Tammy. Something that excites you, something that turns off. You see, there's really two kinds of goals. There's logical goals and emotional goals, John. Logical goals are reasonable. You do those for intelligent reasons. 
I tell salesmen who have logical goals, you're going to raise skinny kids. <laughs> Confucius say, man shoot at nothing, sure to hit it. <laughs> what I'm saying to you in your life, your goals have to be emotional. They have to be something that makes you feel great when you achieve them. See, there's intangible goals and tangible ones. The tangible one is the car, the house, the boat. But you don't want the car or the house or the money. What you want is the way it makes you feel. And that's a great understanding. That's why you have to have the emotional goals because of the way it makes you feel. Now, when you have a big goal in your life, an intangible goal, emotional goal, then you are going to have conflict. You are going to have adversity. You are going to have circumstances. This may be the most important thing I will say to you today, is that there'll never be a circumstance on the outside of you that will ever help you or hurt you. It's what's on the inside that counts. So as you reach out for something big, why then you're going to have conflict, you're going to have adversity, and that's when the greatest law, and you've heard it talked about today, the greatest power you have comes into being. That's the power to choose. That is your greatest power. I talk about that so much that I think that, that pretty much the sum of your life right now is the sum of the choices that you've made. And that if you want something better out of life, it may be just as simple as changing some of the choices. But let me tell you, when you have, when you want a bigger bite out of life, then you're going to have adversity. And I'm saying it's not adversity, but the way you act to adversity. Personal example. Bob talked about the house. I've always had a dream when I was a little kid. I always wanted a house that set on 10 acres just outside of town. Set up on a hill with a lot of trees, a red barn on it, and a couple of lakes, and a winding driveway. I always had that idea. And when I came back from the home office back to Pittsburgh, I said, this is the time to start doing what you wanted to do. And so I started looking for 10 acres just outside of town. And guess what? There wasn't any 10 acres outside of town. Everybody else wanted 10 acres outside of town. And if I wanted 10 acres, I had to go about 10 miles outside of town. But that's not what I wanted. I wanted 10 acres outside of town. And because I couldn't find 10 acres just outside of town, guess what I did? I started looking for 10 acres inside town. And guess what? I found two. I found two lots, 10 acres, inside town. I found them because that's what I was looking for. So if you go down to 510 South Georgia right now, well, you'll kind of drive into a trees, and then when you get there, well, it just pops up at you. It's an 800-foot driveway that snakes down through there, and the red barn is there, and the two lakes are there. There's trees all over the place. You see, those things were there all the time. Those 10 acres, I live closer to City Hall than two-thirds of the people in Pittsburgh, Kansas. And guess how much I had to pay for that? A lot of money, right? I had to pay very little because the guy didn't think it was worth anything because he didn't have the vision that I had of that. My point is, is that you, that you pretty much get what you're looking for. Now, let me give you a side story that goes with that that really is, ties into this whole seminar and the things that we're talking about right now. More of the good life. Eight, ten acres is a lot to mow. 
10 acres is a lot to mow. So I'm cutting my grass, and there's the people that their acreage bumps up right next to ours, and they had a horse. And I'm over there cutting. The woman saw me. We haven't met each other. She comes running across. I get off the tractor, walked over to her, leaned on the fence. It was hot. It was wired. She said, oh, I should, we should disconnect that. She said, you know, when we first got the horse, he used to lean up against that fence, and it would break it down. So we wired it. So, and then once we wired it, why, he wouldn't even get anywhere near it. So we tacked and left, and uh, the next day, I'm going to work. The front of their property dead ends into a street that comes back from my office. These people both work. I come home at 11.30. There's the horse loose in the front yard. I thought the horse was loose, but they had taken a, a single strand of baling wire, tacked it onto the house, over to this tree, over to that tree, back to this house right there, and inside was the horse. Now, that horse could jump over it, crawl under it, tear it down. But he stays there all the time. How come? Because he thinks that wire is hot. <laughs> he is fenced in, right? My question, how many of us are fenced in? How many of us are a slave to the past? How, much, uh, how many of us are not doing things that we really would like to do? because of the past. You see, I think choosing is important, and, I, and I'll tell you, I think a very important statement is that getting in life is not difficult, but deciding what you want. Getting what you want in life ain't tough, but deciding what you want, choosing what you want is tough. Let me talk to you about a, just a simple idea that I think in, in, involves with, and now we get around to the point that you, that you want to talk about here. Self. You need to be an expert as a self-starter, self-motivated, self-control, but most important, self-esteem, self-image. You know, he's, Bob's always talking about this. But the result I was getting over here was the same as the picture I had in here. And when I changed the picture in here, the result over here changed. And the same thing can happen to you. Anybody in this room. Let me tell you why. Because God only made one just like you. He made you in his own image and likeness. He made you just like him, and part of him's in part of you, and that means you're a winner. You're one of God's ideas. Isn't that great to know that? That you're one of God's ideas. Bob used to, Bob used to tell a story when he first came to, to uh, Pittsburgh. I don't know whether he even remembers this. But he talks about a great sculptor who hauled out a piece of granite. And he began chipping away. And every day a little guy come to see him work. And after several weeks while he was finished, and the great sculptor stood back to take a look at what he, was, what he had done. And he said to the, and it was a body of a great, beautiful Greek god. And he said to the little guy, he said, well, what do you think about that? The little guy waited for a minute and said, mister, how'd you know that guy was in there? Well, I'm saying that guy was in there all the time. You're a, you're a Mona Lisa. What makes a Mona Lisa so valuable? What's well, rare, just one of a kind. And you're just one of a kind. But it's how you see you that makes a difference. How does the quote go? The me I see is the me I'll be. In Robert Schiller's latest book, Failure is Never Fatal, Success is Never Final, he tells a story 
about a small kid playing baseball by himself in the backyard. And he said, I'm the world's greatest baseball player. He threw that ball up and swing at it, missed it. I'm the world's greatest baseball player, threw it up again, missed it. I'm the world's greatest baseball player, threw it up, missed it, strike three. He said, wow, what a pitcher I am. <laughs> Let me tell you that you hold the picture of what you really want, and it's just a matter of time. The ancient Chinese proverb, proverb says, the longest journey begins with a single step. I say that beginning is half done, and that you need to start uh, right now. And one of the reasons why I like Bob Proctor and his ideas is I think that he's a, he's a great giver. And this is just a side dimension from what we're talking about. But Sometimes people ask me, you know, why, why I wear that number two pin? And I, I got the number two pin from Bob Proctor a long time ago because he cares about people. I wear the number two pin to always constantly remind me to always put the other guy first. You always put the other guy first and he'll always have, he'll always put you first. And a great guy one time said that the first shall come last and the last shall come first. And I'm convinced that the ideas and the, that Bob has got is great, but he's, he practices his idea. He cares. He doesn't do this because of money. He does this because of a feeling. And his feeling is that if you get a picture of what you really want, then it's just a matter of time until you have it. So let me wrap this up, Bob, and just with a, with a quote that, that came right out of the book that he's talking about right now of, of James Allen. And this is what the whole seminar is about right now, where it says, the vision that you glorify in your mind, the ideal that you enthrone in your heart, this you will build by your life, and this you will become. It's really been nice to come and be with you in Toronto. Again, it's my personal pleasure. Bob, and thanks for having me, friend. Hey! You know, I've, um, I've shared Paul's story with countless thousands of people, but it was really nice to be able to uh, share Paul with the people today and with all the people that are going to be watching this in their homes and in their offices all over the place. Paul talked about the self that you have here is what's going to determine what you're going to be. John talked about, about, <laughs> I never noticed a difference in that, Paul, but I always found the Americans crucified our language. At any rate. <laughs> and I guess the Canadians crucified the English language. But at any rate, you have an image here in your subconscious mind. Now, the first step in changing that picture is in your exercise book, your action planner on page 26. So often, as Paul mentioned to me, for 22 years, every year he promised he was going to get one of those citations, but he said, I never got it. 
Emerson said of what use to make heroic vows of amendment if the same old lawbreaker is going to keep them. You see, Paul was trying to get that citation with the same old picture. And the only thing I suggested to Paul, and it didn't take long, was how to change the picture. And I said, you change the picture, Paul. And I said, your results will change so fast, you'll be shocked. Now, this never happens by accident. You've got to put forth a little effort. Remember how John started out? He said, you put a little in, you get a little out. Some people put a little in, but they put a lot of energy behind it. They still get a little back. If you put a whole lot into it, you'll get a whole lot back. Now, what I want to suggest, as this lesson comes to an end, I want to suggest that you go someplace quiet, by yourself, and think. I mean, really think. Life is precious. There's absolutely no question about it. I think that there's enough evidence, just in what we've covered in this seminar, to indicate to you that you can have, do, or be the things you want. That was no accident that Paul got that house. It's no accident that he runs the largest agency in all of the United States of America, in the world, with that company. And in a town of only 17,000 people, where the average income is below the national poverty level. That's no accident. That's how Paul sees his people operating. And as a result, everyone benefits. Not just the people in his agency, but all the people they serve. Now, we're suggesting here that you make a written description of the person you're about to become. Now, that's not going to make you that person. We're going to get into how to take that image and turn it over in the next lesson. But I want to suggest that you sit down and you really think. Realize this power is flowing into you. As it flows in, we said it just is. It's without form. You make it what you want. And I'm suggesting that you build into your mind a picture of exactly how you want to live. Don't give any thought to how it's going to happen. We're not at that point yet. One step at a time. What kind of a person do you want to be? Where do you want to be in your commercial career? What kind of a financial position do you want to be in? I can tell you one thing with absolute certainty. When Paul got this idea, he was already winning. When John and I got it, we were miserable losers. And I know that if I can do it, anyone can do it. I've gone into prisons with this, and so has John. We've worked with people who are right down and out, the casts of ways. And we've watched them literally change their life just through these simple concepts. And so can you. But you've got to decide how do you want to change it. You don't get the house by wishing. You decide what kind of house do you want. Now, don't just build a picture of being a wealthy person. When Ray Stanford first suggested I could change, that's all I was interested in. And I got it. Howard Hughes did too. But he ended up alone and lonely and in a very defiled body. Now, build an image of being happy, 
of being healthy, and of being wealthy. And I would suggest that you build into it the kind of an attitude that you want for everyone else what you want for yourself. And your life will be absolutely incredible. Now, all you have to do is build this picture in your mind. And when this lesson's over, I'm going to suggest you go somewhere quiet and do that. Don't put it off. Do it. Don't wait till tomorrow, next week, next month, five years from now. Waste all that time. You do it before you go to bed today. Sit down, take your pen, and right here on page 26, describe exactly how you want to live. And when we get into the next lesson, we're going to show you how to firmly plant that image into this part of your mind, and I'll guarantee you, you'll change. And you'll change fast. Now, you just heard from a gentleman from Pittsburgh, Kansas. He's flown all the way up here just to share that with you, that it does work, work for him. Now, think. He tried for 22 years. You can tell by looking at him, he's a good man. For 22 years, he tried to get what he wanted. He couldn't do it. You'll never do it through force. You'll do it through faith and by law. And we're going to show you how to put it in there tomorrow. You'll have to admit, Paul Huntsy sure changed the direction of his life and that of all his family with the proper image. He was something else, wasn't he? Well, we're at the halfway point now. I might suggest that before you even go any further, you might want to go back and review all of this material. It's so important to you and your life. Now, focus on your goal. Sit back and really think, what do I really want? Like Paul, it might be that dream house. I hope you enjoyed this video. We put a lot of good information up here and it causes everything in your life to get better. If you'd like us to notify you every time we put a new video up, hit subscribe and then turn on notifications. Check out all our videos and we will notify you when we put a new one up. Antonio T. Smith Jr. and I'm excited to be with you and I want to take this opportunity to tell you what you get, what this pathbender is about. Can you really change your life? Can I change your life? Can you bend your path? And I want to talk about four things that help you understand how I've come up with pathbender and how the idea of actually bending your path is not only realistic, but it's realistic for you. The first thing I want to tell you is I can't teach you anything because you already know everything. There is something so different about you. Something about you is so fundamentally different that if I disassemble you and put you back together, you won't have life. You don't work like the cameras recording me 
or the lights around the studio. Something about you is different. So if you hear me say anything in these four things that I want to tell you, the first one being you already know everything. If it feels like you're remembering, if it feels good to your soul, if it feels well with your being, that is how you know it is true. And the first thing that I'm telling you, it is true that you know what I'm about to say, you've just forgotten. There are distortions over you and these truths that have escaped you are finding their ways back to you. And I am just your guide back to your compass. It's the first thing. So in truth, something about you understands you can bend your path. Maybe you haven't thought of it, or maybe you've been thinking about it and now it is here. And it is my most gracious honor to be the person you're listening to and to be the soul that's intertwined with your destiny. The second thing I want to tell you is the principle Wu Wei. You find it in the Tao, Taoism. It is this idea of not forcing anything. My friends, life is not a life of manipulation. It's more of a life of meditation. Manifestation does not go hand in hand with manipulation. And if you are forcing your path, you're on the wrong path. If things are not coming to you in the fastest, quickest, most harmonious way possible, if your life seems as if you are swimming up a stream, going against the grain, flowing through cement, if you have money, but no well relationships, or you have well relationships, but no money, if you are spiritual, but broke, and if you are religious, but can't make ends meet, you are manipulating your current path. You're not bending it to your will. Pathbender is a concept I've come up with. I am a big fan of the Wachowskis. And my favorite movie by them is Cloud Atlas. My second favorite movie now is The Matrix, which was my first, but now. And at the end of The Matrix Part 1, Neo bends reality to himself after he believes. And that's, that's basically the premise of Pathbender. The truth is, that's not science fiction. The idea of bending your path has been here for millennia. Bruce Lee told you, be like water, my friend. This is what it is, okay? I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Now you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. 
Now water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. Now all these things are important. So this idea of Wu Wei is about you not forcing. And Pathbender is you finding your own path and you're not forcing the events you want. You're not manipulating the events you want. You are creating the events you want. You are the greatest creator to ever live on this planet and no one can create better than you, not now or ever. The third thing I wanna tell you, and this may come as an offensive shock to some, but you are God. Uh, you are this life-giving force. And I want you to think about it. You're the only species on this planet that can create something out of nothing. For, the, for theologians, way back in antiquity, there's a Latin phrase called ex nihilo. It is a phrase that means out of nothing and how God created this world ex nihilo, out of nothing. And the only life force on this planet that can take nothing and then make a masterpiece is God. But you've been doing that since the day you've been born. Take a piece of paper that has nothing there and out of nothing, J.K. Rowling wrote Harry Potter. Robert Greene wrote 48 Laws of Power. Out of nothing, the Steven Spielberg produced movies. Out of nothing, does Denzel create characters that we remember forever? This idea of out of nothing and you're the only one who can do that. Goldfish can't, lions cannot, just humans. You are God. You can find that in Christian texts in which in the book of Mark, the writer exclaims a question by the disciples as they turn towards Jesus and they ask what manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him now this isn't Christian only thing you don't have to be Christian Jew Muslim to get this the writer is explaining that even the people the ascended master Jesus was with on a daily basis had no idea who he was. He was not a man. He was God in man's flesh. And I say the same thing to you. You're not a man. You're not a woman. You perform miracles on a daily basis. What manner of man are you? that even blank pieces of paper respect your creative power. And the last thing I wanna tell you is Pathbender is about becoming a force, a force to be reckoned with. 
Scientifically, there's a formula for force. You can look it up yourself. Force equals mass times acceleration. We, we must talk for a little bit. In order to become a force, you need mass multiplied by acceleration. In order for you to become a force, you need energy in one place over and over to become multiplied by the acceleration, the speeding up of something to become a force. Say it again. In order to become a force, Einstein says all mass is energy in one place times the speed of light twice. You know that as E equals MC squared. Einstein scientifically understood and explained to us that mass is simply thought idea over and over and over a thought. What is the greatest form of energy? Thought energy. A thought over and over and over moving at the speed of light twice squared over and over in one place and once you keep putting energy in one place in one place in one place in one place the energy ceases to be something invisible and becomes a tangible piece of matter this is why it's hard to destroy something that exists energy can never be created and it can never be destroyed first law of thermodynamics because once you put energy in a place over and over and over and over again, it takes infinity to destroy what has been created. So in order to become a force, someone like me must teach you how to put your energy, harness your energy into one place over and over and over until it becomes something tangible. And in truth, you have been doing this your entire life. You just haven't been doing it deliberately for your benefit. But everything around you is your thought energy manifested into physical form. The second part of this equation, acceleration, is the idea that when you get this piece of matter and you believe in it so much you see it so much it is so it is so tangible that it gains its own speed and then you put speed on top of that speed because everything in the world is in motion already in vibration so this idea of acceleration is this idea that the more you speed what you created up when you multiply that by what you created, you become a force. It's the basis of Pathbender. Mass times acceleration equals force. And many of you are attempting to become a force on this planet, but the problem is you haven't attracted someone like me yet to teach you how to deliberately create the mass you want in your life and how to deliberately accelerate that so you can be a force. Be like water, my friends. You can go to the event page and catch all of what's included. 
but I wanted to stand before you and tell you about the intent. I wanted you to feel my energy. I wanted you to see my face. Energy doesn't lie. If you believe like I believe, if there is something about you right now that I am awakening, we are at the same vibration, consider. I wanted you to catch my energy and I wanted you to know that your time is here and you have the power to bend your reality. Join me. Become a pathbender. I've been looking for you. Antonio T. Smith Jr., you can plant better. You can dominate. Mm-hmm.